Well, the best stories are sometimes the old stories, the stories that get told over and over again. And if you paid attention to what's come out in the movie theaters in the last few years, many of the new releases you've noticed are not really new at all. From Dune to West Side Story to A Star is Born, lots of stories out there are just remakes of what are already people's favorites. If you happen to tell someone that you like the movie version of the book Little Women, they may look at you blankly until you name the year your favorite came out. Was it 2019, 1994, the 2017 miniseries, maybe 1933? Was Joe played by Winona Ryder or Katherine Hepburn? You choose. And if a particular story is really important to us, we might even get upset about the way it's retold in a remake or an adaptation. Have you had this experience? We, at our house, we've, re we've required our kids, you've got to read the book before you see the movie, right? That seemed like a good rule, but it's ended up with some surprising moments in front of the TV where a loyal and disgruntled 12-year-old is yelling during a Harry Potter movie, that's not what Dumbledore said. <laughs> that is not how it went in the book. One day, Jesus was with a group of Pharisees and scribes, and they were grumbling about him and how often he ate with those tax collectors and sinners. And instead of arguing back, Jesus began to tell a story. It was one of the good ones, so many people's favorite, one from the history of Israel. And you know the Israelites loved to hear their stories told. They might say, you remember that one? That one about how we crossed right through the Red Sea and then it just came in and swept Pharaoh and his armies away. Ooh, that's my favorite. Or you remember the one about the time where we walked around that huge city seven times and made its walls fall down? Oh, that one never gets old. They loved their stories. They especially loved the ones, which is most of them, where they started out as the underdog and always ended up as the winner with God's help. Israel was nurtured by its stories. So Jesus began, and it was indeed one of their favorites. There once was a man who had two sons, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son did something scandalous, and through treachery he made off with his inheritance. And then he ran away and left town and traveled to a far country. Wait a minute, wait a minute, they might have said, I know this one. I even know their names. Jacob and Esau. That rascal Jacob, he swindles his brother out of his birthright, getting him to trade it for just a bowl of stew. And that Esau, man, not the brightest bulb in the bunch, was he? Then Jacob had the audacity to trick his father, his father who was blind and sick and dying, well, he thought he was dying anyway, into giving him the blessing that was rightfully his brother Esau's. He had the audacity to put on his brother's finest robe and to cover himself in goat skins and pretend to be his hairy brother and trick his father into giving him his brother's blessing. Does it get any lower than that? To trick your blind and dying father on his deathbed? And boy, was that older brother Esau mad. Well, he was sad, and then he was mad. 
so mad that murder was the first thing on his mind, and that story of Cain and Abel began to seem like it might replay. And Jacob had to get up and run away to a far country. Oh yeah, tell that story, Jesus. I love that one. I can't wait to hear it again. But before Jesus got just a few lines into the story and they really began listening, their heads were turning, they were whispering and muttering, wait a minute, that's not how the story goes. Jesus, you're getting all the details wrong. You even have the characters mixed up. Let's hear the story as Jesus told it. I'm going to invite Kate to come and share part of the story from Luke chapter 15 with us. Luke 15, 11 through 16. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. So Jesus's remake of the story had hints of the Jacob and Esau story in it. There are similarities, of course. There are, there are differences, too. We haven't even gotten to the part of the story yet that has the deepest echo in it. But here at the beginning, both stories are about family betrayal. Both stories have the treachery of a younger son against a father and the resulting conflict between two sons. In both stories, the younger son shocks the family by prizing his inheritance over his family relationships and then running away to a far country. Jacob's ultimate betrayal, the one that Z read for us, and the theft is the theft of his brother's birthright. And it happens at his father's deathbed, although Isaac did end up living much longer than he thought. And such an act of deception is a low-down, dirty trick to play on an elderly and blind and dying father. Jacob's name, which means grabby or deceiver, is fulfilled in his continual taking of what was not his by his birthright. Now, in Jesus' remake, the younger son demands his part of the inheritance, but his father, well, he's still alive and healthy. But to the hearers of the story, this was a shocking plot twist. Kenneth Bailey, a scholar who lived for years in the Middle East, shares the perspective of the ancient culture of this story and explains, such a request in village society would mean only one thing, that the younger son was impatient for his father's death. So while the father's not on his deathbed in Jesus' story, the younger son is basically saying, I wish you were dead so I could have what's yours. And that all his family is good for is to give him the goods that he desires. And then he leaves home and goes to a far country and spends it on shameful pursuits. Both Jacob and the prodigal son in Jesus' story received their inheritance. They both get it through dishonorable means. One is his father's deathbed. One is basically communicating a death wish. 
Both run away, both seek happiness elsewhere, both are disappointed when for various reasons their adventures in the far country turn out to be far more complicated and less fulfilling than they had anticipated. And in a way, both of the younger sons end up forfeiting their ill-gotten inheritance. Jacob, because all that he has, he has to leave back at home. He may be the ruler of the house now and the owner of what is in it, but he can't live there anymore. Too much conflict. And the prodigal forfeits, of course, because he spends all he has. Both of these young men care for livestock while they're away from home, although Jacob's care of his uncle Laban's flocks leads to a whole new collection of assets for him, livestock of his own, to take home with them, while the prodigal's occupation ends up being caring for pigs a true sign of desperation since these animals were unclean for Jews to associate with. Both of the young men wish that they could return to the comforts of home, but there are complicating circumstances. In each place, broken relationships, Jacob with his angry older brother, the prodigal with his disappointed and dejected father to whom he has brought shame. It's no wonder that the Pharisees and the scribes listening to Jesus' story would have made connections, right? One discussion I read uh, said that the connections between these stories, well, they took it as far as to say that Jesus had plagiarized. He plagiarized someone else's story. Maybe if he had turned this into a seminary professor, it would have gotten flagged for too many words being in common with the story of Jacob and Esau. And if we can pick up on the similarities in these stories, Imagine how the teachers of the law who knew the stories of Israel by heart would have seen them immediately. But I'm not being completely fair in saying they might have been surprised or shocked at the changes in the stories. Changing stories is something that rabbis were known for doing. They were constantly retelling stories. The American Jewish scholar Jacob Neusner says that rabbis were like artists who sometimes use the stories of scripture like colors on a palette to paint a whole new story. So although they were creating their own pictures as they painted, they used the scriptures as paints with which to produce their pictures. So one of the hues that Jesus is painting with in the remake of this story was the shocking and public way in which the prodigal shamed his father and his family. In order to divide up the assets contained in land, the prodigal would have had to sell off the land, something that would rarely be sold outside of a family and only in times of dire need. When the prodigal went into the community proclaiming the father's land for sale, he was shaming his family in a culture that lived on the currency of honor and shame. And to waste that money and end up serving in a Gentile pigsty. This is the lowest of lows. These are shameful actions in a community that will not easily forget what he's done. Kenneth Bailey writes that for someone who had brought this deep shame on his family, there would have had to be a kind of gauntlet for him to pass through to return home in his village. If someone knew that he was returning, members of the village would have met him at the outskirts and reminded him very publicly, very angrily of his shame, 
yelling at him, possibly breaking pots and jars filled with burned grain to remind him of the broken relationships and the bad aroma he has left behind in his community. So the prodigal son in Jesus' story, well, he, he's not just afraid of facing the father. He has to return to the reaction of a whole community as well. And he's destined to live with the memory of what he's done for the rest of his life. Another difference is that Jacob really never has to face an angry father in his story. His beef is with his brother, who was murderously angry when Jacob left. How does one address the anger of an older, hairier, and stronger brother? Especially when returning home and Jacob learns that his brother is coming out to meet him, marching out from town with 400 men in what seems less like a welcome home party and more like a war party. So what does the wily Jacob do? Jacob, with the wealth he's accumulated in his time away, is able to put together a little gift for his brother. I'm thinking a little gift bag, a scented candle, some nice tissue. I'm not sure that Hallmark makes a card for this occasion. But Jacob knew nothing says, I'm sorry I swindled you out of everything that was yours, like 220 goats, 220 sheep, 30 camels and their colts, 50 cattle, and 30 donkeys. So he sends these on ahead, a way of trying to soften his brother's anger, to beg his forgiveness, and he spends the night wrestling with God or God's representative in such a dramatic fashion that he ends up with a whole new identity. And that's where God's people get their name. They actually name themselves after the deceiver Jacob turned wrestler Israel. Their whole identity is wrapped up in his story and how it will end. So what happens when he comes to meet his brother the next day? I'm going to get Zaragoza to wrap up that story for us. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my gift that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything I want. So he urged him and he took it. 
So Jacob is able to win his way back into the heart of his hairy brother. And he proclaims that to see his face, the face of one who shows forgiveness and mercy, is like looking into the face of God. So let's turn back to Jesus' story. How does he end his remake? What what does he do? What happens to the Jacob-like character upon his return? Will he have anything to offer to win his way back into the Father's good graces? What will he see when he looks in the face of his father? And spoiler alert, that line, to see the face of God, applies here too. Let's hear Kate finish up the prodigal story. Luke 15, 17 through 24. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There for just a minute, Kate. And there's one line in these return narratives that is so poignant, so well played, that I'm gonna ask her to stay where she is and have Zaragoza remind us of one line from Genesis 33, from Jacob and Esau's reunion, side by side with the prodigal story. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And from Luke. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I love that idiom, fell on his neck, (laughs) for embracing. Um, This sequence of events, he ran, he fell on his neck, embraced, and kissed him. Those three things in sequence are only found in two passages in the Bible in that order, in Genesis and Jesus retelling Genesis in Luke tying these stories together right here at the heart, at the climax of the story. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't Jesus a good storyteller, weaving the old story into the new? For Jesus' listeners, all eyes were on the Father in the story. What would he do as the Son returned? Would he give him what he deserved? Would he rebuff his Son? Would he kick him out? Would he accept his offer to be a slave? But the behavior of the father is the most shocking behavior in the whole story. See, while Jacob had to steal his brother's best robe, 
and pretend to be someone he was not to receive a blessing, the father offers his own best robe, the father's own robe, his acceptance and the restoration of identity to his son. While Jacob comes with arms full of gifts and tries to bargain his way back into his brother's good graces, the prodigal comes home empty and finds that his father's arms are full. The good gifts were at home all along. The father doesn't even allow a hint of a transactional relationship here. Did you notice that? The son has rehearsed his story, lines of repentance, and then an offer, I will be your slave if you'll take me in. But the father won't even let him get to that line in the story. He won't even let him utter the words that he'll be a slave to him. And while the son offers to serve to win his way back, just as we've all offered something to God, hoping it will win his love in return, the father offers sandals for his feet, a symbol of sonship since only slaves went barefoot. The Jacob story offers forgiveness at a cost, and the cost is to Jacob. He's the one who's done wrong. He's the one who pays a gift on return. But the father in Jesus' story pays the cost himself. He himself endures the shame that the son deserved. Remember that I said a son who had shamed his family upon returning to the village would have had to run a gauntlet of shame on his way past a community that would remind him of the pain he's caused? What does the father do when he hears his son is at the outskirts of the village, that he's about to pass through this lane of shame and receive all that he deserves? Well, the father runs. The father gets up. And he runs through those people to the edge of the village. He does the unthinkable, catching up to his son before the village can. And friends, patriarchs did not run. This was more than a silly spectacle. This was an unthinkable act. And before the village can shame the son, the father interrupts what everyone expects to happen. He publicly offers the robe, the ring, the sandals. He restores the son at a cost to himself, not just a material cost, but a cost of shame and dignity. He proclaims that there will now be a party to celebrate. And it's this last part of the passage where we uncover why Jesus remade this story. Why did Jesus want to paint this story again for us? Is he just doing what rabbis did? Is he just using an old story to paint a new one? It's actually that this masterpiece that he has made is a self-portrait. Jesus has painted himself into this story. And while the old rabbis would take an old story and reshape it to teach a lesson, Jesus himself actually becomes the lesson. He teaches what a good father would do and then he does it. Who does that? Teaching and then acting out the shocking role of a forgiving father who takes on the shame of his children in order to forgive them and restore them to himself. The father that Jesus paints is the antithesis of the father in Jacob's story. Isaac, I mean, he gets kind of lost in this story. He's a background figure. Isaac is distant. He's uninvolved. He's absent from relationships. He loses control of his family. But while Isaac is distant, the prodigal's father is present. 
running, taking control of the situation. The prodigal's father has great compassion. He goes to unthinkable lengths to restore relationship with his son. And while Jacob deceives his father and betrays his brother, the prodigal's father is never deceived. He understands precisely what is happening. He is neither physically blind nor psychologically in the dark. And his younger son's demand to give him the share of what was his was blunt and heartless, and the father faced it head on. The father was fully aware, never anesthetized, to the pain that his son was bringing on him and the family, and it hurt the father's heart in this story. So while it's possible to betray God, it is never possible to deceive him. Think of Jesus saying to Judas at the Last Supper, go and do what you have to do. Basically saying to Judas, you can betray me, but you can never deceive me. Just as the father's eyes are open when the prodigal betrays and leaves, he is also alert and aware and ready for the son that comes home, fully aware of the son's betrayal and the cost of his sin, and fully aware that he will take on himself the cost of forgiveness. He knows it will cost him to welcome his son home. And that is no transactional relationship that the son can ever pay for. The welcome is never dependent on the worthiness. Everything about restoration comes at cost to the father himself. When God wanted to show us who he is, he knew that we would all have varied and complicated relationships with the idea of father. Think about it. This is one of the few relationships everyone in the world has personal experience with. Whether good or bad, absent or indifferent, we all have an image in our head when someone says father. And Jesus knew this, and he didn't just want to say, I'm like a father, letting us identify that with our own experience. He told a story and painted a portrait of himself. And he said, I'm like this father, this incredibly loving, sacrificing, and welcoming father. Part of Jesus' repainting of the story for the Pharisees was to add what seemed like a whole other story onto the end of it, an epilogue of sorts, the story of the disgruntled older son. And while the father could let go of the younger son's sin and let go the shame he caused, the older brother was having nothing of it. Instead, the older brother puts himself in the starring role plays the victim, and starts to complain about the mistreatment he's received, the mistreatment, while he's been home the whole time, living under the father's roof. And while the father has to run out of the village to welcome and take away the shame of the younger son, because this older son is pouting outside the party and won't come in to celebrate his brother, the father also has to go outside in search of the older brother. He has to leave his guests unattended, which was also against social norms. Again, it cost to his own image to coax this older brother, please come in, please celebrate. This addition to the story, this is brilliant on Jesus's part because it recognizes that if things go well for all of us wayward prodigals, we will all eventually become the older brother, living in the house, 
watching the welcome that the Father offers to other, centering ourselves in the story and wondering, what about me, God? Where's mine? Ellsworth Callis said that the older brother reminds us that it's easier to have a personal awakening in life's pig pens than in our own undisturbed routines. And so if we want to live in the Father's house, it means we have to constantly check ourselves lest we live so far from the pig pen that we think we earned or deserved our seat at the Father's table. So there's unresolved conflict at the end of Jesus' story. Don't you hate unresolved conflict? There's an open-ended invitation to those of us listening to the story. The scribes and Pharisees have been recast as a different character this time, and that had to make them furious. They are no longer Jacob-turned-Israel, the lovable scamp welcomed in and returning to celebrate. Now they're the older and problematic and bitter brother. It's hard to hear the truth about yourself. But if the one that you're hearing the truth from is a loving and welcoming father, then the truth includes an invitation to come home. Jesus continues to invite prodigals in and older brothers too. So Jesus leaves this story unresolved, allowing them to answer for themselves, allowing us to answer for ourselves how we will behave. Jesus is waiting to see what will you do with the story. The same story is getting told through our relationships all the time, over and over again. So why remake a story, especially a good one? Is it because we think we can change the plot or the action or the characters take it up a notch? Is it because we have better CGI now? We can make the Lion King say the words right out of his very hairy mouth? Why would Jesus retell a story that all of those around him would have heard. It's because his goal is not just to remake an ancient story. His goal is to remake us. And he knows that only happens when we receive the welcome of the Father. He knew that we would only come home to the Father when we understood at what great cost it came to the Father himself when we finally get that our welcome is never dependent on our worthiness, when we know that even those of us stand grumbling outside the house, the Father still makes his way out to find us too, that those who have done it all wrong and that those who have seemingly done it all right while our hearts go wrong within us, that he wants all of us home, all of us. And like Jesus, the Father in this story effectively welcomes scribes and Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners, opening the home to both the older and younger brother in the same house, the same banquet. So the story of Jacob and Esau is a family history. And Jesus' story is a parable. It's a work of fiction. But sometimes fictional stories contain such truth that even though they're fictional, they can repaint our futures for us, inviting us into the stories where our true stories unravel forever. So a story is told by Ernest Hemingway, actually, of a father and his teenage son who had a relationship that became so conflicted 
so problematic that it strained to the point of breaking and the son ran away from home. His father, however, began a journey in search of his rebellious son and he looked in all of the villages and all of the outposts when finally, as a last resort, the father reached the great city of Madrid. And in a last and desperate effort to find his son, he put an ad in the local newspaper. And the ad read, my dear son, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon tomorrow. All is forgiven, I love you, your father. As Hemingway's story goes, the next day at noon, the streets in front of the newspaper office were filled with hundreds of sons searching the crowd for the face of their father. It's a good story, even though it's a remake. All of us in the crowd, wandering, searching for the face of our father, when thankfully Jesus showed us exactly where to look. Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come. And during this last song, I just want to invite you to look into the face of the Father again in worship. If you want to come and kneel here at the front, you're welcome to do that. If you want to kneel at your seat, if you want to pray where you are, take a moment to ask the Father how you've been looking at him, how you've been approaching him. You know, for those of us called to ministry, we often try to buy our way in with our actions, our goodness. For some of us, we feel disgruntled about those that we don't think have, you know, followed the rules all the right way. And some of us are both, one or the other. So I just invite you to take a moment, be with the Father, let Jesus show you who he truly is, replace the stories that you've made about him with his own story, and surrender yourself to him again. Look for his face today.